So Matthew 24, and I'm going to start in verse 32 this morning. Matthew 24, verse 32. says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of the day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Let's pray. Lord, just as we turn to your word, we thank you for it. Thank you that we can read it together aloud this morning. Uh, Lord, that we can study it together. And Lord, we just ask that you would just help us, guide us as we're going through these things. And Lord, I just ask that you would be glorified in the things that I have to say this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I came up with, or Jen came up with, I think, for the kids, young young people, adults, whoever wants to figure out, you need to tell me, yeah, oh, the kids that are supposed to come up with or listen for a word or, or whatever it is that we come up with each week, you're supposed to come and tell me how many times I say that word in, in my sermon. Not that I'll know the answer to that, but... <laughs> um, but for, for today, if, if, you're, if you're listening, I want you to, to tell me what kind of tree and how many times I talk about that tree this morning. So, All right. If we look through this, and as I was studying this section of the, the passage here, I took a highlighter and I highlighted each time it talked about the coming of the Son of Man. And it does start in verse 27, but between verse 30 and the end of the chapter, it references the coming of the Son of Man seven times. And so clearly, that is kind of the context of what we're talking about and all of the, the, the basis of what Jesus is saying in these things. And I'm going to, as we're looking at the first section here between 32 and, and 36, uh, I've said before, I would never come up with this um, as my, I don't know, you okay? <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to come up with this as what, what people assume the interpretation of this passage is, what's a very common interpretation. In my own reading and study, I don't think I would ever come up with this as what this means. And so I have a hard time coming to you and definitively saying this is what this means and this is what it represents. So I'm going to give you what that, I won't call it a consensus, but what is generally 
um, at least in, in our circles, considered of what this means. And I don't have any other answers for you, so I can't, <laughs> I can't give an alternative. Um, but anyway, that's kind of where we look at this. And it's, Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree. And so we're going to look at this parable and try to see how this um, fits with the second coming and and what it might mean to us. And so there's a couple things in here. First of all, as I listen to, to various preachers on this topic, most of them will just simply tell you what the fig tree represents. But they will not generally prove it from Scripture. I, I've yet to come across somebody who went through Scripture to say, to prove to you that this is what the fig tree represents. They just give you that interpretation or that definition without any evidence of it. And, and so when I went to try to verify this through Scripture, I'm having a hard time. <laughs> and so they will often, they will, the answer is usually the fig tree represents Israel. Um, and it, it certainly can in, in certain ways. And we'll just look at a couple of, of scriptures here. But it, if you want to turn back or go to Hosea, I'll give you these ones that are hard to find in the Old Testament. They don't go too very often. And right after Daniel... But Hosea um, chapter 9. And what I find as as I go through the scriptures that speak of the fig tree, I find it is often spoken of in conjunction with some other tree or similar similar thing. And the most common that I saw as we go through the scripture, it's it's in conjunction with the the vine, um, speaking of grapes, of course. But uh, so Hosea chapter 9, verse 10 says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as a first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. And so here's probably the, one of the clearest points where it actually just comes right out and says, I found them, you know, the comparison between the, the grapes or the vine and, and then and as the fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree. So there's a comparison of the fig tree and the people of Israel. And so there is a connection there, certainly. Um, maybe not quite as thorough through scripture as, as what some kind of would lead you to believe, though. Um, and I think, as I'm looking at it, and I'm, I'm not going to go through a pile of scripture to, to show this, it's just, as I'm looking for these passages that are trying to build this case of the fig tree representing Israel, I really found it was more used as a dis- part of a description of what's happening to Israel. And I'll see that in, in Joel, chapter 1, and that's actually just over a page or two in your Bible from Hosea. 
Joel chapter 1, verse 7, it says, He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. And so anyway, this is the enemy coming in and, and destroying Israel. And so yes, in a, in a sense, the fig tree represents Israel, but it's, it's more of being talked about in the description of what is happening to Israel, what's happening to God's people. And so, anyway, this is kind of the, the best I can put together as, okay, this is, does represent Israel. Um, it is used in that way as we go through, through various scriptures. So I can't disprove the statement, and I can't find a better answer. So I would certainly, and even the context, um, as I was leading up to this in the, in the past few weeks, I've fairly thoroughly pointed out that this time of the tribulation is, is intended to deal with Israel. And so it makes sense that we're still talking about Israel, even in the parable of the fig tree. And so when he, Jesus says, now learn a parable of the fig tree, we're going to try to make that connection that we're talking about Israel. And something, and I think the way that it's been used is it's talking about something that is happening to Israel in that description. And so it says, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. And so this tree, and I think we're, we're, we're in approaching fall. Me and Paul were out dirt biking yesterday on my street bike and his dirt bike. <laughs> um, but as we're driving home, we're looking around and he, he pointed out like, the leaves are starting to turn yellow already. And there's our sign that fall has started. Um, we're at our property and we planted a few different things out of our property and the zucchini plants are all completely destroyed from the frost that we've had the last week or so. Um, come in, those plants those, and, and the tomato plants, completely dead now. And so I, I picked a few zucchinis and we gotta go get the tomatoes <laughs> yet. But, but these things are signs. We know that when the plants die from the frost, from the early mornings, it's fall time. Just like it seems like a couple weeks ago we saw the leaves budding and <laughs> we knew it was spring, right? But that's what Jesus is saying here, is you can look at the fig tree, and I don't know much about fig trees. I've, I've looked up a little bit, but he says, when that springs forth and it le- you see the leaves coming on the fig tree, it's summertime. You know that summer is, is nigh. It's coming, right? It's right around the corner. And so we can know the season by this event happening. We, can, we understand these things. And so he uses that in a way that this is something that's very clear, very common, and it's just, it's just a, such a basic thing. We don't need to complicate this, right? It's like he's using a very basic illustration here. That when the branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. We can know what season it is based on, on what the fig tree is doing. It's growing and, and starting to, to put out its leaves. In verse 33, he says, So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. 
And so what things? Well, I guess it has to be the stuff that we went through last week between verse, verse 4 and, and, and 30, 31. All these things that are happening, this description of this tribulation period, as these things begin to happen, we're supposed to know that this is at the door. Like his coming is, is, is nigh. It's about to happen, right? And so we don't know. There's, there's a few events that kind of give us a, sort of a specific event. Um, we talked about like the, the abomination of desolation being set up in the holy place. And we can go through scripture and see that there's a set number of days from that event happening to the second coming, to the end of the tribulation. And so there are events that give us specific times, but in general, it's, it's tough to, to pinpoint the exact things. And so he's giving us, you're going to see this stuff happening, you're going to recognize it, you should recognize it, and you'll know that that time is coming. That's really what he's saying here. But there's a little bit more to it. It says, note it is near, even at the doors. I wasn't going to, to look at this, but the, that statement, even at the doors, I won't go looking for, this, for the scripture passage, but I think it was in, in Revelation chapter 4, 3 or 4, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, it talks about Jesus standing at the door. <laughs> and it is at the doors. Like Christ is going to be at the door of heaven ready to return, right? And I think that's maybe the connection that, that is being made here is that it is, it is near and even at the doors, like Christ is coming to the door ready to walk through and return to earth. For most of the world, that's not a good event. <laughs> that's a, a return in judgment. So, but we continue on here. Verse 34 says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And I, I came across, um, I didn't get C.S. Lewis's actual quote, but it was someone just referring that C.S. Lewis had made a quote about this verse would be Jesus' most embarrassing statement. Because his second coming didn't happen in those people's lives that he was talking to. Now, I'd love to hear all of what C.S. Lewis was talking about at that moment. <laughs> um, but the point is, is, was Jesus saying, Jesus is talking to his disciples, like, like I'm standing here talking to you. And when he says, this generation shall not pass, is he talking referring to the people he's having the conversation with. And that's the assumption, just as we read it, or as some people read it, and that would be an embarrassing thing, like that Jesus made this prophecy of his second coming, and it didn't, it didn't happen, right? Jesus hasn't returned yet, therefore, and these, all these people died, that didn't get fulfilled. He was wrong. Well, that's not what he's necessarily saying. He says, when you shall see all these things, then that generation won't pass away until he returns. And so it's not until these other things, all this stuff that he's talking about is happening and people see that happening 
then that generation won't pass away. When we look at this fig tree parable, um, and like I said, the common understanding of this, certainly not a universal ex- ex- universally accepted thing, but a common understanding of this is that we're talking about Israel going back into the land and becoming a nation once again, which is a very strange thing to have happen. It's, as far as I know, it's never happened in any other part of history where a country gets reformed in the same piece of land um, and the people that were scattered come back to that land. Um, that's a very odd thing to have happen. But if we're talking about fig tree and things happening to Israel, that fits this picture of it's coming back. You know, you go over winter and the leaves fall and this, everything looks pretty dead. And in the springtime, it's, it's like things are coming back to life. They're re-sprouting and regrowing, and that life is renewed in them. And if we're talking about Israel, that's a good picture of Israel coming back into that land, forming a country once again, the people coming together in that place. And it's starting to grow. It's starting to, to sprout new, new growth and leaves and It's interesting to look at it that way, isn't it? And it says if that, and if that's the right interpretation of this, then also it says that that generation, when you see that happening, that that generation won't pass. And so, a few years back, we were in a study together, some of us, and and talking about the generation, how long, what is a generation, what is it referring to? And you get into, I remember looking at, I remember in high school being taught that a generation is 20 years because that's when approximately the age, and it used to be the age, that's moving (laughs) a little longer now, but that it was common in years past that by the age of 20, people were having children again. And so then you start the next generation. So they referred to a generation as 20 years. But that's only one interpretation of the word generation. Um, You could be talking about the normal lifespan of a group of people that were born in in an era, right? And so we talk about our parents' generation. And so some of us, that's a similar group of people. Others, it's a little bit different group of people, but... But my generation is, is people that were born in a certain <laughs> group of years. <laughs> oh, but I'm not thinking I'm old. I'm thinking some of you are going to think how young I am if I say what those years are. <laughs> but so I'm born in the mid-70s. And so those people that were born in, that, in, the, in the 70s, we are considered a generation and a group of people. And we, we talk about, you know the different um, you know, millennials and Gen Z and you know, all these different terms that we have. And we refer to different groups of people, different age groups of people as a particular generation. And so that's a common thing. And we've looked at scripture and back, we go back to Psalm 90. I won't bother turning to that passage, but it, it says that a man would live to the age of 70 and if by strength he might live to the 80. And that was considered an expected 
lifespan, an expected span of a generation. But you know, when he says, this generation shall not pass until this be fulfilled, we don't have to limit it to a number of years. It's just to the lifespan of that group of people. And so, you know, I know some people have like 70 years. Well, 70 years is up as far as Israel coming into that land. That was 1948 that that happened. And is Christ, well, 70 years is up. Hmm. <laughs> we got a few more years till 80 years is up. But you know what? It's not uncommon. Queen Elizabeth, how old was she? She was 96 years old, right? Jacob is 93. Yeah. Jacob is 93 years old. Still going strong. The, the gentleman that we're doing some work for, 97 years old. Um, and it's not uncommon. Um, my parents, Jen's parents, our dads are both getting pretty close to 80 now. And my dad has no major health issues. I don't expect him to, he may die at any point, but like, I don't have any expectations, no, nowhere near his deathbed as far as his overall well-being goes. And so there's no need to put a deadline on, <laughs> on these things of, well, it has to happen by this year. And we've seen in the past, anybody that puts a deadline on these things is usually put to shame in that. <laughs> so I'd be very careful in, in that. But um, if we understand this correctly, this generation, this group of people that were alive when that happened, we can expect to see Christ's return in their lifetime. Well, that was kind of exciting. That might be a nice time to... <laughs> we might go through some tough things, but, but that's kind of an exciting thing to think about. And so there's a... Like I, I said, like I'm not adamant that this has to be the interpretation of the fig tree, but it's, it's still the best that I can see. I haven't heard anybody come up with a better interpretation of that than, than that one. And so I, I, I kind of think that that's probably how it fits. You know, you start to dig a little bit, it kind of fits with how Scripture uses the fig tree in, in relation to Israel. So it seems to make sense. And certainly, before 1948, nobody had that interpretation. <laughs> nobody was expecting it to happen that way. Much like prior to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, nobody was thinking that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, right? Nobody thought that the Messiah was going to be that description that we see in Isaiah of, of his complete physical destruction and being sacrificed like a sheep, right? People didn't understand that applied to Christ until it happened. And so, just like this, we wouldn't apply that to Israel coming and reforming a nation. We wouldn't come up with that prior to it happening. It was like, oh. And that's where... I'm also... Some people don't appreciate how cautious I am in interpretation of prophecy stuff. But I see that, that we are so blind as to what it's referring to until after it happens that I'm like, oh, I'm just very cautious in, in proclaiming this means this, or this is what we're looking for, because it's, it's after the fact that prophecy becomes clear in what it was referring to. Um, but it is, it's, it's kind of interesting to speculate on, on some of these things, and, and we're hopeful that we're right in, on most of it. 
Anyway, we're going to continue here just for a few minutes on the next passage here. And it says, but, sorry, that was verse 36. Oh, we need to look at verse 36. It says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So, go back to looking at, we know the season based on what the fig tree was doing. We know summer's coming. And we can look around the world and we can see, hey, look at all the stuff that's going on, and it looks like the time is near, right? And so, we understand, we can, under, we can see and expect based on the season, these things are beginning to happen. And we know the time is near. But Jesus is very clear, the day and the hour knoweth no man. And so back in the 88 and 89, when everyone's sitting on the rooftops waiting for the rapture, and it didn't happen, it's like, well, what kind of fool are you thinking that you know the day and the hour? <laughs> so let's not jump to complete conclusions that we can figure this out, break down to the, to the last detail. Um, Jesus was very clear on that. Something of interest in that thought as well. Um, if we look over in Mark 13, it's like a parallel passage to this. Mark 13. There's one more thing added in, in that statement. Verse 32, Mark 13, verse 32. It says, but of that day, of that hour, knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus himself, certainly at that moment, didn't know when that second coming was going to happen. He was giving a prophecy of what to expect and how you can know the seasons and the time and the things that were going to happen around leading up to his second coming. But Jesus himself didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. Now, some people are afraid that this takes away from, from his deity in some way. And not in the slightest. God is, we, we describe God in certain ways and we all knowing, right? He's omniscient. He can, he's capable of knowing everything. But God chooses for our sake, to not know certain things. Um, and just an example of that, if you want to look at Hebrews, there's two, a couple of verses in Hebrews that say very similar things, but Hebrews chapter 8. God chooses to not know certain things for our sake. And this is an example of that in chapter 8, verse 12 of Hebrews. It says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He says, He is not going to remember our sin. Chapter 10, verse 17 of the same book says exact same thing. It says, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. 
God is going to forget what we did to deserve hell. God's going to forget all of my sin, all of the things that I've done contrary to his law, to his word. Every thought, every word I've spoken, every act that I've done that goes against God's character is forgotten. Amen. <laughs> it's the only way I have any chance of being allowed in his presence is that God can look at me and he doesn't see a guilty sinner. He sees debt's been paid. I don't know any, anything that you've done. Well, thank God that he is able to forget that because we're not so good at that, are we? No. <laughs> when people do things that go against us, that hurt us, we're not good at it. We'll sometimes forgive or attempt to forgive. But man, is it ever hard for us to put that aside and forget that it ever happened and to have complete fellowship with that person again, right? That's a, that's a hard thing. God does that through Christ, his blood. I went through looking at this. You know how many times it talks about Christ's blood is what paid for us, that paid for our sin. It's his blood that covers us, that creates that ability for God to forgive us and to forget what we were and to proclaim us as righteous before God. What a wonderful thing. That doesn't take away from God's power, <laughs> who he is, his might, and his ability to know all things. He chooses to forget our sin. Christ chose to not know the day and the hour. It doesn't take away anything from, from who he is or what he's capable of, does it? God can, can do what he wants. He can forget or choose to not know certain things. And so Christ gives all this information, and yet he himself at that moment didn't know exactly when these things were going to happen. And then we get into this Noah, verse 37 says, As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Very clear, this picture that I'm about to show you is a picture of something to look at, something to understand about the world when Christ returns. When he comes back, here's something that you can look at and see what the world is going to be like. As in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So in what way? And we need to be careful. Don't go back looking in Genesis chapter 6 and through 9 and figuring, seeing, reading all that happened in Noah's day and all that was going on there. Jesus gives you in what way? <laughs> it's the same. So don't start trying to, to insert things into this thing and put meaning here that isn't there. He gives us in what way it's, it's like that. And so he gives us that information. We don't need to go searching and trying to figure out in what way it is like Noah or the days of Noah. Verse 38 says, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's an interesting thing, because 
The description that Jesus gives of that seven-year tribulation period in the first part of Matthew, and we, we've sort of looked at some other scriptures. There's other places we could go and look at how horrific of a world that it's going to be in those days. And we look around, like, I look at the news, and, or the lack thereof, but we look at what's going on in the world, and in the spring I said, like, look, they're, they're talking about famine and food shortages. Maybe you ought to put a garden in. <laughs> Make sure you have some food for this fall and winter when things are not going so well. They're talking about, you know, you look at, look at Europe and Russia's oil that is not going to Europe. And was it uh, Switzerland or one of these places? Like, they, they can, they're saying they can put you in jail for up to three years if you put your thermostat over 19 degrees Celsius <laughs> over the winter. Like, things like that are happening. <laughs> um, Colorado, I, I didn't actually believe it the first little bits that I heard, but then I heard an actual interview with a person who said, yeah, my smart thermostat had a message on it that there's a power emergency and it was locked at a certain temperature. I couldn't lower the temperature for their air conditioning. The, the government or the, the power company actually locked them out of their own thermostat and they couldn't adjust the temperatures below a certain temperature. People are worried in Europe about being able to heat their houses this winter. And there's like a run on firewood and coal and all this green energy, <laughs> right? Um, people are worried. People are, but you know what? So this stuff's going on, but how many people are going about their life as if absolutely nothing is wrong in the world? Um, there's a lot of warnings about economic collapse. And yet people are investing and they're buying stuff, taking out loans, buying a new car. And, you know, like, oh, let's sell my little house. I'm going to go in further debt and get a bigger house. People are doing these things. People are still getting married. <laughs> they're still having children. And that's going to carry on even right through tribulation. Like people are going to just close their eyes to what's actually going on in the world and we're going to try to pretend like there is nothing wrong and we're going to eat and we're going to drink and we're going to have kids and we're going to live it up. And that's exactly... Noah preached to those people that were near him, warned them, there's a flood coming, God's going to judge. And not a single person, not a single person turned and believed him. Right? They just carried on as if nothing was happening. And they just lived life like it was everything's normal. Right up until the day that the flood came and they were taken away. It's going to be like that through the tribulation period. Like through the, what is, Jesus describes as there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, no nor ever shall be. Like the worst the world has ever seen and people are going to go on living as if nothing's wrong and just okay, let's just carry on this, this too will pass right and nothing to worry about and Christ is coming and there's a judgment right around the corner for these people look at our world like you, you can't 
Oh, we went to a movie. We'll close with this. We went to, what's it, what was it called, you know? I don't know. Good movie. <laughs> Life Mark. Life Mark. Um, a Christian-based movie um, made by Kirk Cameron and, and that group of people. So a movie about, um, I don't know what my point is here. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we went to this movie. It's about a, a, a young man who was adopted. And then it sort of gives his story of turning 18 and then meeting his, his birth parents and learning that his mom went to an abortion clinic, was on the table about to have an abortion, and changed her mind at that very, very last second and walked out of there. And she had that baby and she gave it up for adoption. And so, a great, very good movie, very good movie to show that. But the movie is not the point. The point was the previews of other movies. And obviously they didn't control, the people made this movie didn't have any control over what other movies get promoted um, at the beginning of this one, right? You can't go to a movie anymore, for the most part, that doesn't have something with the, a perverted lifestyle. Homosexuals, transgender, there's going to be some rainbow something or other involved in almost anything that you're too on to watch as far as entertainment. And our world, you know, I can't go to YouTube, I can't scroll through anything without seeing some discussion over this issue. And our world, again, calling evil good and good evil, if you say anything against this stuff, you're considered evil. Um, someone was talking about there's pastors in the States being required to give the transcripts of their sermons to the government. Like, does this really happen here? I thought that was only in the movies. But that's, what, that's what's happening. And they're looking for, are you saying something against these things? Are you using hate speech, right? Are you, are you talking against the evil that's going on in the world? How dare you? <laughs> How dare you call these things evil when we're mutilating children and conditioning them, training them from a very young age? to do things that are completely against nature, right? What an evil world. And they carry on as if no judgment is coming. That's what was going on in Noah's day. That's what's going on today. I can't imagine God allowing this for much longer. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Noah. Like he refers, Christ refers to these, these judgments. The evil that people were doing that was just common and accepted And God's judgment's coming. God is going to judge this world for the evil that goes on in it. Um, and when he comes the second time, it's not the same as his first time. It's not coming as an innocent little baby. Not coming in, in love and kindness. And he's not going to be the Jesus that our world describes as loving and all-accepting Jesus. It's going to be coming says, with a, a sword in his mouth and with a rod of iron, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to set up a kingdom and destroy everything that's wicked in this world. That's what's coming. That's the judgment that's about to hit our world. And people carry on as if nothing's happening, nothing's wrong. Crazy. Let's pray.
Lord, as we're looking at these things, Lord, uh, there's, there's some things that we're not 100% certain on, but Lord, we, we look at it and we do our best to, to see how things mesh with Scripture and, and try to come up with the best understanding that we can. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us in those things, guide us in our thoughts. But Lord, um, more importantly, we see some very specific things and the judgment of God at the second coming and knowing that our world is, is going to carry on as if nothing's wrong. And yet, Lord, you're coming in judgment. And they ought to be concerned about that. And we ought to be spreading the news of that message as loud and as broad as we possibly can as we're leading up to those days, Lord. So help us to, to have a concern for the, for the lives, for the souls of those around us, Lord. Just pray these things in Christ's name.